Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm John Wells here with Lynn Ware Peak. Our first guest this morning is Professor Russell Foster, who is a fellow at Brazenose College. He's also the director of the St. Jules Thorn Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute, and he's the head of the Nuffield Laboratory of Ophthalmology at the University of Oxford. Russell has just written Lifetime, Your Body Clock and Its Essential Roles in Good Health and Sleep. It's a guide to using the science of the body clock to promote better sleep, better health, and better thinking. Professor Foster, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Good morning, John. Absolutely delighted to join you. Well, we are delighted to have you on the program. Uh, your your book has a lot of buzz, and with 30, 40 years of, of real hard science and research that you have done, uh, this is chock full of a lot of really good information. So let's start with this. The 24-hour clocks, they affect everything from mental health, risk of cancer, obesity, and it appears that sleep is at the key to all of this. What is the current thinking about sleep? Well, it's a really important question. Um, and, and there are a variety of different uh, sort of uh, explanations. My view isn't universal. My belief is that sleep is essentially a time of inactivity where we do not move within an environment to which we are poorly adapted, but during which time we undertake a myriad of essential bits of biology, whether it be memory formation. And, and the, the extraordinary thing, it's not just the consolidation of facts, but we're actually processing information whilst we're asleep. If you want to come up with innovative solutions to complex problems, a night of sleep has now been shown uh, to hugely enhance your capacity to do that. We also knew, uh, know from, from recent studies that whilst we sleep, uh, toxins in the brain, and there's a really very important misfolded protein called beta amyloid, which is packaged up and cleared from the brain. And it's high levels of beta amyloid that have been associated with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. In a sense, you can think of the quality of one's sleep as defining the quality of one's wake. They are yin and yang of our existence. Yeah, and, and certainly the human brain is intelligent, we know that, and we've also learned over the years that it's a distributed architecture, that there's intelligence in every cell of the body that communicates with the brain and communicates with other cells. And reading your book, it was fascinating that there's not only a central clock in the brain, but every cell in our body has a yeah. clock that synchronizes with that master clock. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So part of the pivotal work that showed that there is a master clock within the brain was undertaken by Martin Ralph and, and Mike Menneker at the University of Virginia. And in fact, I was with them and contributed to those, those, those discoveries. And so what we thought was there was this master clock ticking away in the brain and forcing rhythmicity on the rest of the body, whether it be hormonal changes, behavioral changes, you name it. And then it was discovered that these special clock genes are not just found within this master clock, this suprachiasmatic nuclei, but in every cell in the body. I thought, oh, yeah, well, they're probably doing something different. And then I remember being at the meeting uh, when the first demonstration that peripheral clocks, basically any clock you care to talk about, it has the capacity to generate a circadian rhythm. So you've got this extraordinary hierarchy whereby the master clock is then regulating but not driving 
billions and billions of cellular oscillators throughout the organ systems of the body to coordinate, to orchestrate a beautiful physiology and behavior. And it really is one of the great achievements, I think, in neuroscience. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Professor Russell Foster. He's just written Lifetime, Your Body Clock and Its Essential Roles in Good Health and Sleep. Okay, Professor Foster, so if our organs and every cell in our body has, has their own sort of internal circadian rhythm, and if those aren't linked up, um, and that's what we're hoping the master clock does. But I, I, what I think I'm hearing you say is if we get really poor sleep, our organs aren't linked up. So our liver might not be linked up to rid itself of toxins while we sleep if things are thrown off. Is this what you're getting at? Well, kind of. I mean, one of the, the really important things to ensure that we have this coordination across the entire sort of time domain of our bodies is that the eye detects the light-dark cycle. And in fact, I was very much involved in the discovery of new photoreceptors, new light sensors within the eye that set the master clock within the brain. And the key thing is that if you don't have that daily exposure to the light-dark cycle, then you begin to drift. That the, the circadian system then begins to sort of fall apart. And I've likened it to rather like an orchestra. You know, in a beautifully aligned orchestra, all the musicians are playing the right notes at the right time. But in the absence of that coordinating cue, the orchestra starts to drift apart. And so instead of having a glorious symphony, you have this cacophony of sound. And that's a bit like what goes on in, the, in, in our biology. It begins to drive things apart. And of course, what we need to do is to get the right materials to the right organs and, and tissues at the right concentration at the right time. And that's how our biology works. And that's what this extraordinary time stamping up by the circadian system does to our biology. In the absence, things fall apart. And we have what's called internal desynchrony, where things aren't beautifully aligned and we can't do the right thing at the right time. I like that, internal desymphony. I'm gonna write that down. Okay, so <laughs> one of these things when we do have uh, internal synchronization of our systems is we rid ourselves you you talked a moment ago about the beta amyloids in our brain mm. and if those are not dumped at night when our body and our brains recover through good sleep then we are predisposed for dementia or alzheimer's later on in life can you That's go right. into that a little bit more and sort of explain between those people who only regularly get five hours of sleep and those who get nine? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So a really good sort of set of questions. Um, I, I guess the first thing to point out is there's been a certain amount of misinformation uh, uh, about how much sleep we need. And we're often heard about the mantra, you know, you have to have eight hours. But sleep is very much like shoe size. One size does not fit all. The National Sleep Foundation's recommendation is around about seven to eight hours, but the range is between six hours and some people need 10 or 11 hours. And the key thing for each of us is to identify how much sleep we need as individuals and then organize our lives around that to prioritize sleep. And it's kind of straightforward. It's the sort of thing our, our, our grandparents would have, would have told us. You know, If you're feeling uh, able to function optimally during the day, 
if you don't crave caffeinated drinks, if you are interacting with your family, friends, work colleagues in, in an appropriate way, uh, if you're not oversleeping on free days or indeed on holidays, then you're probably getting the sort of, you know, these are the things that tell us that you're getting the right amount of sleep or not. Uh, and, and, it, and, it, and of course, the other thing is that our sleep demands change as we age. And of course, there are genetic influences. So how long we sleep and the sleep timing, our chronotype, whether you're a lark or an owl, is to some extent influenced by our genetics. So this huge variation, and the first thing we've got to do is work out what works best for us, and then of course, try and defend those behaviors. And, and you know, people have come up to me pre-COVID, I was sort of doing lots of, lots of public talks, and one chap said to me, you know, I don't get eight hours of sleep. Am I going to die? And I said, well, I can assure you, you're going to die, but it may have nothing to do with the fact you're not getting eight hours. And I think it's really fascinating because, you know, in the 80s, everybody sort of thought sleep was like some some illness that need a cure. Then we went to the stage of, yes, yeah, sleep's kind of important. And now we're completely terrified if we don't get the sleep we think we need. Um, so there's a lot of misinformation from sleep apps. They are pretty inaccurate. Um, and again, lots of people get very distressed about the image, the messages they get from those, those sleep apps. Another really important fact is sleeping through the night. We're all told you must get eight hours of consolidated sleep. But the natural state of sleep in humans, as, as described so beautifully from historical records from Roger Eckert, um, and then later in, in the lab by Tom Weir, has shown that the normal state of human sleep, given the opportunity, is to go to sleep. There's a slow winding down. Go to sleep for a few hours, wake up. You may be awake for half an hour or more. And then you go back to sleep again. You wake up again, and then you go back to sleep. And what what's happening at the moment is that people will wake up, they think, oh my goodness, I'm never going to get back to sleep, start getting stressed, anxious, then start drinking coffee, doing emails. If they're just relaxed, maybe not lie in bed, but go to, a, go to another room quietly, read, listen to a piece of music that you enjoy, you will go back to sleep. And we've got to, we've got to sort of, I think, bring, take ownership of one's sleep and not be terrified of it. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> Professor Foster, um, can we talk about light? You you mention in your book that natural light is important for sleep, and there's morning light and there's afternoon light. If someone goes to bed at 10, they usually get up at six, but the last couple of weeks they've been getting up at four, or they wake up at four and have trouble getting back to sleep. Should they get more natural light in the morning and less in the afternoon or the other way around? It's a really, again, fascinating question, John. And, and light has different effects at different times. So morning light makes you get up earlier and go to bed earlier the next day, whereas dusk light delays the clock, makes you go to bed later and get up later the next day. When we're all agricultural workers, and of course, until fairly recently we were, uh, we got symmetrical exposure to morning and dusk light. So the clock was being nudged forward and back in a symmetrical manner. And what's happening in, in our modern society is that we may only get partial to exposure to one bit of daylight. We did a study a few years ago on university students around the world, and we showed those with the latest chronotype, the, the more owl-like they were, were missing morning light in the morning, which would have made them get up earlier, but getting lots of late afternoon light, which of course makes them get up later. So part of our morningness and eveningness 
dependent upon our genetics um, and how old we are, but also because of when we see light. And I think that that is, is something that we can take control of. So if you are a late type, but you've got to get up for work in the morning, then what you can do is set the alarm and it's brutal. Um, if it's winter, you may need to sit in front of a light box. If it's, if it's summer, then you can get outside, get that morning light and it will advance the clock and make you get up earlier. So it depends upon what you want to do. Most of us tend to need more morning light than evening light. But there are some people, about 10% of people, who would need more evening light. So advancing the clock would get you up earlier? So if you- That's right. Okay, all right. Yeah, so that morning light gets you up earlier. So if, you, if you're struggling, then as soon as you can, uh, get that morning light. Have your breakfast by a window, um, get outside. It's really interesting. A study showed that um, uh, some really good, the people who have a dog are really, have, have pretty good sleep. <laughs> and, and of course, it's probably because they've got to get out of bed, walk the dog, they get that morning light exposure. The clock is then stable, which then influences a stable uh, sleep-wake cycle. <laughs> I worked my way through uh, college uh, working on a graveyard shift from 12 until 8 in the morning, midnight till 8, and sometimes I get overtime till 9 or 10, and that was brutal. But um, the, the common belief is that over time, a person will be able to adopt to a night shift, a graveyard yeah. shift. And you debunk that, and you, 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 you have actual research on that. Can you, can you tell us about yeah. that? Well, absolutely. Uh, and so I remember chatting to the chairman of the Confederation of British Industry a few years ago, and, and he was sort of giving this speech saying, we can run, you know, uh, Britain on a 24-7 basis, um, and we won't need to, won't have a, a huge, great commute, we won't need to build exp expensive buildings, you know, we can just use it around the clock. And here was a bright man, uh, you know, trying to find a solution, but had no idea of the biological consequences of what he was saying. And, and the thing is, 97% of, of shift workers don't adapt to the night shift. And we have to ask the question, why? I mean, if you, if you tr travel across multiple time zones, we do adapt to the uh, appropriate time zone and we go back to light. What's going on, of course, is that in the factory, in the workplace, at night, there's relatively dim light. And then on the drive home, you're exposed to morning light, uh, as you were, John, when you finished your shift. Uh, and the clock will always defer to the brighter light signal as being daytime course it is and so the clock does not shift so the great problem of a night shift worker is their entire biology is saying you need to be asleep and uh, so we're struggling against that and part of the way that we cognitively um, essentially override this need for sleep is to activate the stress axis now stress is is wonderful short term it's a bit like first gear in a car it gives you that wonderful acceleration but if you leave the engine in first gear the engine falls apart, and that's what's happening on the night shift. Essentially, people are driving their, their, their stress axis on full full throttle, and, and of course, it's distorting physiology and making you more vulnerable to diabetes 2, obesity, massive metabolic problems, cardiovascular disease, and even increases the risk for cancer. Studies on night shift nurses a few years ago have shown high rates of colorectal cancer and breast cancer to the extent that the World Health Organization has stated that night shift work is a probable carcinogen. 
Wow, that's huge. And that this is the first time that, that I have heard this discussion. It also makes me wonder, Russell, here in Park City, we have, uh, because Salt Lake City is a big Delta Airlines base, we have a, a lot of people who work in the airlines. And uh, at least one friend of mine, a pilot, um, who flew internationally, you know, unlike a, a night shift worker, they are constantly being thrown into different time zones. Maybe we go to India once and then we go to Europe and then we're here and there. And he just felt like it wreaked so much havoc on his internal systems that he was so happy when he retired. And I just thought, oh, you know, your circadian rhythm must just get accustomed to to upset. But what would you suggest to those pilots? I mean, I guess turning on the really the bright lights in the cockpit or something when it's supposed to be daytime. It's really tricky. And, and, and you know, there's some, been some very interesting studies on aircrew and airline pilots. So, so female aircrew, for example, circadian rhythms are intimately associated with the menstrual cycle. Um, and there's huge disruption of circadian rhythms. And so menstrual cycles can uh, get very badly disrupted. Uh, and uh, infertility is, 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 is a problem. Uh, high rates, in, incidentally, is a study on Canadian long-haul pilots, high rates of prostate cancer in those individuals. And studies comparing short-haul versus long-haul have shown that cognitive decline one's ability to process information is worse after five years of long haul versus short haul. What you can do about it is pretty minimal, I have to say, uh, because there aren't drugs at the moment that shift the clock. Interestingly enough, we're working on some. Uh, Melatonin is very mildly effective if at all. And of course, it becomes very difficult because you don't know where the clock is. If you've done multiple trips backwards and forwards, let's say across the Atlantic or uh, across the Pacific, the clock is in lots of different places. So even if we had a drug, um, it's not clear what when you take it. So it's, it's a real issue. And I think it's very important that not only airline pilots, but our night shift workers in general need to know the consequences. Um, so, you know, irritability, anxiety, it's worth bearing in mind that in some sectors, uh, the divorce rate is six times higher in night shift workers compared to day shift workers doing the same job. So poor memory consolidation, poor communication skills, reduce social connectivity. And so we, we've got to let people know what they're taking on. But I don't want to sort of give the message of endless doom and gloom. I think there are things that we can do. And I, and I think there's a duty of care that is being appreciated by employers towards their employees. So, for example, knowing there are higher rates of obesity, diabetes 2, coronary heart disease, what food do we make available to our night shift workers? Well, it's fast food, high fat, high sugar. What we should be providing is easy to digest, protein-rich snacks. And I don't know of any sector that's actually doing that. Uh, knowing there's a greater chance of falling asleep at the wheel after the night shift. And there's a study in the UK showing that 57% of junior doctors after the night shift on the drive home had either had a crash or a near miss. We should be providing those, those apps which detect if you've got a head roll or your, your car is swerving to alert you that you're falling asleep at the wheel. There's a bunch of stuff that we could do. And, and, and at the moment, we're not. And, and, I, and I really hope that, that employers, employees get together to iron out some of these issues before it becomes litigious and there are class action suits, which will then destroy any sensible dialogue.
Oh, that's so interesting. Russell, I'm, I've always wondered this. If I, for example, well, first of all, I'm one of those people that in the wintertime I could probably <laughs> go to bed at 7.30 and I always want to, but I force yeah. myself to stay up. <laughs> and, um, and then when I go, for example, to Europe, um, you know, an eight-hour time difference, once I get adjusted to the the time over there, which, as you say, takes about one day per hour of time zone difference, which is interesting. Yep. I always, I kind of pretend to myself that it only takes me a day if I just miss, if I just stay awake until, you know, a decent time at night. But once I get adjusted, I still want to go to bed there at 8 o'clock, 8.30 in the wintertime, oh. whatever it is. Absolutely, because that's the way you're wired. I mean, you know, you're a morning person. Um, and in fact, morning people find it easier to fly to Europe, to fly from the States um, east than the other way around. Professor Russell Foster, who has written a fascinating book, Lifetime, Your Body Clock and Its Essential Roles in Good Health and Sleep. Uh, Professor, I was uh, reading over the weekend about the neonatal intensive care units where the lights are pretty much always on. And uh, you mentioned that there's increasing evidence that providing a light dark cycle for preterm babies in the neonatal uh, uh, intensive care unit has significant benefits, including increased weight gain and reduced stay in the hospital compared to infants that get light all the time. And I uh, sent mail to a friend of mine who uh, is in Oslo, Norway, who works at one of these facilities, and she told me that their lights are on 24-7 and that she's going to talk to the director and she's buying a copy or a book of your book and, and uh, she's going to try to uh, spread the love over there. Yeah, I think it's such an important thing. And it raises the very important question is why don't we take sleep circadian rhythms more seriously within the, the medical domain? And I've had long discussions with my medical, half a family's medics, um, and, and there are two reasons. One is it's not embedded within the training. Most medical uh, doctors will have, during their training, may have one or two lectures on this subject, and it won't be the sort of stuff you'll find in lifetime. And the second thing is our healthcare professionals are so, their jobs are so intense. I mean, the expression is they're running as fast as they possibly can to stay where they are. If we then ask them to do certain things at certain times, it just makes the administration, the practice so overwhelmingly complicated. I think, I think the attitudes are changing and, and, you know, knowing, for example, that drugs at different times will have different effects. So, for example, chemo and radiotherapy, uh, some wonderful stuff by Bill Horesky, who, who showed that same drugs, same concentration, different times for ovarian cancer. After five years, there was 45% survival versus a 10% survival in the other time group. And these data are now spreading through the medical profession and beginning to think, how can we incorporate this in our training? And in, more importantly, how can we incorporate this stuff in our practice? It's going to take a bit of time, but I think we're moving in the right direction. And the rest of the animal kingdom and bacteria and everything on this planet, are we all driven by a clock? That was the great surprise. We kind of thought that, oh, well, you had to be a multicellular creature to have some sort of circadian clock. And now 
all the major groups of organisms on the earth have been shown to have the capacity to generate a, a, an internal circadian rhythm. Now, what's fascinating is that the basic me mechanisms are conserved across all life on earth, but the genes and their protein products are slightly different. So all the animal line, that's invertebrates and vertebrates, build their circadian clocks in largely the same way. But the plants do it differently, the bacteria do it differently, the fungi do it differently. So I think what this tells us is this is a fundamental requirement of all life on Earth. And we've all done it in different ways, but boy, does it influence every aspect of, of, of an organism's biology. Professor Russell Foster has written Lifetime, Your Body Clock and Its Essential Roles in Good Health and Sleep. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm John Wells. I'm here with Lynn Ware Peak. Our next guest is astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is a best-selling author, director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History, and the Emmy-nominated host of the Star Talk podcast. Neil's latest book is Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. This new book brings the rationality of science and the scientific mind to look at the political and the cultural issues that we talk about every day. Neil, welcome back to Cool Science Radio. Thanks. It's been too long. Has I not been cool enough for you to be on the Cool Science Radio in the last oh, few years? I know. And you are our personal astrophysicist at Cool Science Radio. So we really appreciate that. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, why don't we start with this? Because this, this book is a departure from uh, your other books. Tell us why you wrote this book and how you organized it. So the, 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 the motive... Uh, sorry, I'm outdoors and there's an airplane flying overhead. This is what it is to be in civilization. A <laughs> hundred years ago, they said, wow, we can fly, you know. <laughs> so this book has been gestating within me since I've been scientifically literate. And I would date that from early middle school, where I'd walk around life and I'd see grownups, grownups who I think should know better, saying things, doing things. It just made no sense where they believed they had some deeply formed view on how the world works. And that was just not the case. And I said, how rampant is this? And so I kept sort of silent uh, records of what I saw happening in our societal, cultural, political systems. And I, you know, most of it I let go because if it, you know, if it, if it's harmless, why bother? But at some point, I was pregnant with this, having gestated my whole life, and it was time for this to give birth. And so, so Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization, is a lifetime's reflections on what we do, why we do it as a, as a, as a society, as a civilization, and and it, and it shows you that there are other ways to think about arguments that you may have had with others at the Thanksgiving table, the dinner table that you have over social media. There are ways to see so many arguments, not from the middle where you're compromising, that, that could be a, a solution as well, but cosmic perspectives force you to take a few steps higher. And then you look back down on the arguments you were constructing and realize maybe you didn't have arguments at all and maybe your quote, opponent also didn't have arguments and that you can meet in a new place mm. and 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 
birth a new era of tranquility and peace in the world. That's that's all I'm trying to accomplish with the book. That's all. That's all. Well, the scientific me- uh, process is not perfect, but boy, does it work well. And it's worked well for many, many years. What can the scientific process tell us about truth and the consensus by our peers? Yeah, it's an important question. In fact, the, the book leads off with just a full description and discussion of what the word truth means. I, I didn't try to take control over the word because many people use the word, especially religions. If you look up the word truth, uh, it's often associated with what religions can do for you. And it's on the Bible posters, this sort of thing. So I wasn't going to take that away. What I did was I put, added nuance to the word truth. So uh, if you have a, a, a personal truth, for example, that Jesus is your savior or or Abraham is your is your prophet or or Muhammad is the last of all prophets. If you have some some personal truth and you are certain this is the case in a free society, especially in the United States, where religious views are protected, no one's going to take that away from you. The problem is if somebody else has a different personal truth. If you rise to power over laws or legislation and then create laws that have to apply to everyone else in this pluralistic land, that is the seeds of unrest. And so, all right, that's one kind. Another kind of truth I'd call political truths. These are truths that just become true because you heard them repeated. Okay, (laughs) It's, It's the seeds of propaganda. That's how propaganda works. You just start saying it and, and the brain doesn't know how to interpret it, it begins to think that if it hear it if you hear it a lot it must be true and it gets deep inside of you and then you, you adapt it adopt it as truth there's another kind of truth i call objective truth this is what the methods and tools of science are exquisitely tuned to establish these are the operations of nature that are true whether or not you believe in them and it seems to me if you're going to make laws based on anything, it should be on objective truths in a pluralistic country where everybody lives within the laws of the universe. Okay. The laws of chemistry, physics, biology, and, and, and astrophysics. So I should have some foundation there. Otherwise, again, it's the seeds of unrest. And if you want to promote tranquility in the world, we need to be thinking more along these lines. And let me just say, uh, let me abstract for you the scientific method, right? You could read that's a hypothesis testing. I don't, yes, that's all true, but I have a, I think I have a better way to think about it. Here it is. It's in one sentence, do whatever it takes to not fool yourself into thinking something is true that is not, or that something is not true that is, period. Do whatever it takes. It means taking notes, taking video, chart recorders, double checking, verifying that maybe you have a bias and someone else doesn't. Maybe you both have biases. Get a third person. Get someone who's using different wall current. Is it 120 volts, 240? Maybe the machine acts differently. (laughs) Design a different kind of machine. Just to make sure you're not fooling yourself. And not being influenced by bias that is so pervasive in everything we do in our lives. And one thing good thing about science is one of the many things is that we know in advance that we risk bias 
And so part of the scientific, the genesis of the scientific method is to reduce that risk as far as possible, if not to zero. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with our own personal astrophysicist, <laughs> Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. He has uh, written a new book called Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. As you've been talking, Neil, I've been thinking about those yard signs that you see that in some people's yards that say, we believe in science, you know, in this house, we believe in science, no one is illegal, um, you know, on and on and on. And I always wonder, so is believing in science then believing, truly believing in the scientific method, believing that science can be faulty and mistaken and biased and all of that? And I, I think my question is, you know, <laughs> what is believing in science then? Do you yeah, it, have to, it's is a it malformed, <laughs> it's a malformed bumper sticker. Okay. Uh, science is not about belief. It doesn't matter what you believe. Belief has no role in this. You could, so here, here's, let me be a little more sensitive to people who feel that way. People say, do I believe in the Big Bang? And I'll say, I apportion my confidence in whether something's true according to how much supportive evidence there is for it. So generally in our society, when we use the word belief, it almost always implies it's something you think is true in the absence of evidence. But if you have evidence to support your thought, then it's not belief. It's confidence mm -hmm. in the evidence. Now, on the bleeding frontier, moving frontier of science, where we don't have enough data, really, to know if one thing is true or another, at science conferences, there's a lot of contested ideas going on there. Mm -hmm. And do you know the difference, though? At a scientific conference, when I'm having an argument with you, there's a... there's there's an unwritten truth about that argument. We both go into that argument knowing either I'm right and you're wrong, you're right and I'm wrong, or we're both wrong, okay? <laughs> and and generally those arguments are, you leave them off by saying, here's how we need to get better data to decide. And then we bring in someone else who's good at experiments and observations, whatever, and then it becomes a collaboration. And then this is how science increments forward. So, so um, it's, it's, it's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of, uh, is the evidence compelling or not? Mm. When you were, when you said scientific conference, it reminded me of the story in your book about the 4,000 astro or, or not astrophysicists, physicists that go to a conference that was supposed to be held in San Diego or somewhere and it ends oh. up being held <laughs> in Las Vegas. And this yes. is the chapter on risk and reward and how the casino did not profit over that weekend. Yeah, if, if there was a headline that said uh, a, a casino profits lowest ever. The American <laughs> Physical Society, which is the the the... Um, the community of the nation's physicist um, has been asked to never return to Las Vegas. <laughs> so you can ask, well, did they know how to bet in some secret way? No, no. Why do you have casinos? Because the human mind is not really wired to think statistically and probabilistically about the world. And that gets us into so much trouble. People saying, oh, there's no such thing as coincidences. It's ordained into the day's activities. Or uh, you'd be at the roulette table. I'm betting on seven. Why? Well, it's due. 
There hasn't been a seven in a long time. They even show you the recent roles and where it came. Feeding this, this gap in our ability to understand and interpret probability. So I'm sad for civilization that an entire industry, the, the casino industry, has risen up to <laughs> exploit the fact that we have a weakness there in our capacity to know what is and is not true and what is likely or not likely to happen. And I'm saddened by that. It's very exploitive. And here's something, you know, what we have to do is teach probability and statistics in K through 12. It's not really there. It's there in kind of like elective, okay? And, but not, it's not part of the basic curriculum. And by the way, where in many states, where do lottery profits go? Do you remember? Remember education. They education. go to education. Yeah. And so I I so I have this this fantasy that part of the education money from lotteries goes to teach people about probability and statistics, but then they don't end up going to the <laughs> to the thing that's actually paying for the program that teaches them probability and statistics. So so the book is is filled with examples of just things we do. Whereas if you looked at it scientifically or a little more analytically. Or, or with less passion of opinion, that you'll land in a different place. If I could slip in another quick example, I know we're, we're running short on time here, but I have a whole chapter on uh, meat eaters and vegetarians. Like, that was like the funnest chapter to write, by the way, because um, they're always at odds with each other, <laughs> always. And so uh, there's some playful takes on that conflict as well in that chapter. But one of them is, you maybe you're a vegetarian because you don't want to kill animals. Okay, no one's going to take that from you. So you own a a, 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 a humane mousetrap in your basement and you trap the mouse because you don't want to snap its neck. You got to check on it every few days because mice don't last long without water. So they dry up pretty quickly. So you check it. There it is. What do you do? You put it out in the wild, setting it free where it is doomed to be eaten by owls, foxes, <laughs> all manner of woodland predators within nine to 18 months of its life. Yeah. Where so the safest thing to do for your mouse is leave it in your basement. <laughs> It'll live <laughs> six years in your basement, right? But you're not doing that. So do you really care about the longevity of the mouse? Or is are you you know, are you virtue signaling that you I mean, what is where does this land? So I'm just trying to get people thinking a little more deeply about their actions. And one of the things that I really love about the scientific process is that there are consequences. And if you uh, misinterpret your facts, it will certainly be called out on you as, as your peers look at that. If you misrepresent your facts, uh, your data, it could ruin your career. Yeah, it, it, it does. It would end your career. It's it, mistakes. Uh, if you get something wrong, not a problem on the frontier. Mm -hmm. Most things published will ultimately shown to be wrong when new data comes along. If you made a mistake, all right, we'll give you a few more chances. You know, you forgot to dot the, you know, to carry the two in your equation. Mm -hmm. That's why there's peer review to try to help you not make simple mistakes like that. But if there's outright fraud or faking of data, which would be fraud, and that gets discovered, that's basically the end of your career. Yeah. So science has a built-in mechanism for the integrity of its participants. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why respect for science, I mean, it used to be very high. I think when people had access to Google search engines and they can spend a full hour researching something, 
they can become experts like someone who spent eight years getting a degree. And so they they will say, no, I know better than you know. And that's so it gives people a false sense of power of knowledge. That's it a whole does. other conversation. You know, your book is chock full of lots of ideas. One of the ideas is to take something that you believe in, supported by data, and examine the facts that inform that belief. And then using those same facts, see if you can support 180 degrees from your original belief. And I think that that's something worth trying. Yeah, it's not done often enough. We try to do it in science. I mean, it's, it's not canon, but it's, uh, it's frequently in, uh, mentioned. Someone will come up with some result, at, usually at a conference, because before it's fully vetted, and say, you know, I could pose it the question this way or plot the data in this other way and arrive at the opposite conclusion or no conclusion at all. Mm -hmm. All right. And you want to be the one to have done that with your own data. You don't want anybody calling that out. So, again, you want to be your own best skeptic. And with people who have strongly held formulated opinions, generally they're not skeptical of their opinions. They'll watch news stories that resonate with them. They'll buy books that, com that continue to reinforce it. They'll do Google searches with key words that are exactly what they believe. And they'll think that everybody thinks that way because the Google search found every website that feeds your suppositions. So uh, I think the book is a wake-up call for people to try to form better arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, less emotionally, uh, uh, less emotionally infused, because the moment you get emotionally attached to your argument, you you shut off from from ideas that could conflict with them, and that's a very natural bias that we have. We're human. I'm not. I'm not complaining. I just want you to be self aware, right? And that's the start of any kind of progress in this regard. Well, a good example of you know how how to how to try not to feel is when you get those heart palpitations, when someone is attacking your belief and you, get, you feel this emotion rising in you instead of saying, huh, okay, let's consider your point. And I, I was thinking about when you were talking about objective truths, you know, to someone who believes in a flat earth, do, you know, what you're saying is, how not to believe in an, an objective, that that is an objective truth, how to know, but but how do you know? Yeah, so the flat earth people have cherry picked the data yeah. in ways where they're just choosing not to believe other evidence in support of a round earth. And so the real problem, yeah, I can give counter examples and things, but the real problem is in K through 12, where you are taught that science is a satchel of facts, period. And then you say, well, this fact can be changed. Whatever. No, science, that's an aspect of science. Science is primarily a way of querying nature, skeptically. Mm -hmm. And then when you realize, by the way, skepticism is not doubting everything. It's knowing when there's sufficient data to arrive at a conclusion so then you can move on to other cases. So I can mention a couple of things. I live on the East Coast. I've seen uh, football games that take place in California on a Sunday afternoon but on the east it's winter so sun sets early it's dark in new york city and the sun is still up in los angeles for that la rams game okay and i'm thinking but this is live how is that how can earth be flat but i'm in darkness in there and so can you think about that why not <laughs> think about that and how come the shadow of earth on the moon during a lunar eclipse 
is never just a flat line. It always have a curved edge to it as it moves. Just think about that, <laughs> right? And so uh, when people refuse to accept compelling data, it means they haven't been trained to know what compelling data looks and smells like. Mm. So it's a deeper problem in the school system than just running around beating people on the head, uh, telling them what is or is not true. Yeah. It wouldn't be a good educator if all you did was uh, beat them on the head and tell them they're wrong. You have to, you need to, you need a persuasive argument that recognizes where they're coming from so that you know how to navigate that so that at the end you have successfully communicated rather than just lectured. Mm. Very important difference. Yes. By the way, another example of, are your ideas sort of consistent? Have you thought it through? There are people who, who eat line caught tuna. I buy line caught tuna, right? They're caught with the fishing line. Why? Because net caught tuna, where they drag a net, very efficient and effective, you got to pay more for the line caught tuna, but those occasionally trap an air-breathing dolphin, and dolphins suffocate because they can't go up and get a breath of air. So it protects the dolphins. But what about the tuna? <laughs> You're eating tuna, okay? You, you have arbitrary, you have said, I care about the dolphin, but not the tuna. I'm eating me some tuna here, okay? Oh, the dolphin is a mammal. Oh, as you eat your hamburger, okay? Right. We got to save dolphins. <laughs> Give me some more ketchup on this burger. It tastes great. This Wagyu beef tastes... I mean, <laughs> where is the self-consistency in the views that you have? And in science, that's what we do. We say you have this view. If you have this view, does anything else have to come with it? What's separable? What is not? Yeah. And so the whole book is filled with that. If anyone cares <laughs> and so and so realizing that a lot of our beliefs are pretty arbitrary and not related to other beliefs that we have and this is uh an urging by you this thing that's that was gestating in you for so long <laughs> to start to recognize i wonder why you um or, about the chapter on gender and identity you know one thing i didn't know was that santa's reindeers male or female they all grow antlers Right. No, no, it's it's more it's more potent than that. Uh, reindeer, both um, both sexes grow antlers. So mm -hmm. in principle, Santa's reindeer could be both uh, male and female. However, actual reindeer, actual male reindeer lose their antlers before Christmas and the female antlers keep theirs. So if Santa is actually flying with reindeer on Christmas Day, and if all the reindeer have antlers, they're all female, which means Rudolph has been misgendered the entire time. <laughs> I, I got an email from someone who said, actually, in my culture, I forgot, was it in Norway? I, I don't remember where. Um, uh, Rudolph was called Rudolfina because they know oh, there you <laughs> they know, they know you got to be a girl yeah. uh, if you have antlers on Christmas Day. The little things just to think about, you know, because you make we make assumptions. By the way, I don't I'm not here to 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 usurp your opinions. I want your opinions to just be more deeply informed than they might otherwise have been. Mm. So it's not a rant again. Yeah. It's just, it's here you are, you know, oh, oh you want to protect dolphins because oh, they're mammals. So you've put a circle around our little part of the tree of life and you valuing other animals because of their proximity to us. How about the rest of the tree of life? Okay. How about the tree you cut down to make your house with, with the floorboards, the two by fours, the structural members, the tree that could live a hundred years, Pacific Northwest, the trees live a thousand years. 
oh, but I need wood for my table. I need wood for like, really? Really? You're saving the one ounce mouse and you're cutting down the tree to build your house that the one ounce mouse walked into? What, who do you think nature cares more about? The tree yeah. or the mouse? The tree every day of its life generates 15 times the mass of the mouse in breathable oxygen. And it's home for birds and insects and, and squirrels and all kinds of woodland creatures. Nope, you're going to cut it down to build a house to save a chubby one-ounce mouse and then hand it over to owls. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're almost out of time. Before oh, my gosh, you I'm go, sorry. I just, I'm too much talking. Sorry. Oh, no, I just wanted to mention to you that, that uh, uh, you know, we all know that astronauts that go into, into space have this transformative overview effect, which you write about in the book, as they view a book that doesn't have borders and has a thin blue ribbon that makes up this protective and fragile atmosphere, knowing that every astronaut feels that way, or pretty much everyone does, and only maybe 600 out of 8 billion people on the planet have experienced it. Why haven't we done something better with a, a really good VR experience that we could show to the planet and to get people excited about maybe if they love the planet, they'll take care of what they love? Yeah, I think VR is only a fraction of the way there because when you're in orbit, you're also weightless. Mm. So there's a certain sort of lightness of being that accompanies that perspective that, that you're not going to get just in a VR experience uh, yeah. first. But second, the uh, this is why I've advocated for, you know, the first time, uh, uh, maybe on one of Elon's large uh, spaceship you see videos of, um, you see, you know, um, uh, VR, uh, you know, uh, uh, the videos where he's imagining what the future of that would be. Uh, get one that holds maybe 100 seats and get every head of state to go on board. <laughs> put them up first, okay? Yeah. So e even the most warring factions, you put them all up there, okay? Give them coffee service or whatever else they want and let them hang weightless looking down on Earth yeah. where they cannot see their national borders. That's and right. they see Earth as nature intends with mountain, with 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 oceans and land and clouds and that's transformative. By the way, better yet, send them all to the moon because then Earth shrinks down into this ball. If you're just in orbit, Earth is still kind of big beneath your feet. You go to the moon, that's where the, that's when the overview effect becomes a cosmic perspective. Mm. Yeah. Maybe, that, maybe that, leave them up there. No. <laughs> <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson is Cool Science Radio's personal astrophysicist. He's also uh, just written a, a a really good book, Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. Neil, it's always good to see you, always good to talk with you. We wish you continued success with this book. Thank you both for, for your continued interest in, in what I do here. And I'll try to keep it cool, then I get another invite back. Yeah. <laughs> keep it cool. <laughs> yeah, you certainly right. will. Thank, thank you, Neil. Thanks, Neil. You got it. <laughs>